0: Welcome to the Sport and History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This week we're continuing a series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the B.S.S.H.'s Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR and I'm here with Dr. John Hughes of Royal Holloway, University of London. Hi John. Hi. John is a reader in German and cultural studies at Royal Holloway and has wide-ranging research interests taking in the field of modern German and Austrian literature and film, in particular during the interwar period and in cultural and media responses to sport and leisure in the German-speaking countries. His most recently published book is titled Max Schmelling and the Making of a National Hero in 20th Century Germany. Uh, that came out with Polgrave in 2017 um, and that book examines the cultural, social and political significance of the legendary German boxer. So John, the paper you gave at the IHR was drawn from the book. Can you tell us about what specific event you focused on for your paper?
1: Yes, um, so the paper um, was focused on one of Schmeling's fights. It took place in 1934, August the 26th, 1934, so exactly 85 years ago, almost. In a couple of weeks it will be that 85th anniversary. Yeah, that's true. It was um, against Walter Neusel, um, another German boxer and it took place in Hamburg. Um, it was um, therefore a fight which was taking place in Nazi Germany. Um, it happened to be the first, f- uh, first time Schmeling had fought in Germany since 1928 because in the interim he'd been primarily fighting in the US where he'd made his name. He'd become the first uh, European. World Heavyweight Champion in 1930, uh, he'd held that title for two years, he'd lost it in 32, and in the meantime his career had been slightly on the decline, he'd lost a number of fights in the preceding months and the year beforehand and for purely sporting career, perhaps commercial reasons, he thought it was time to fight again in Germany but of course with Hitler now in power in Germany that was also then a decision which inevitably had a sort of political resonance um, with another up and coming boxer Neuser now yeah. on the scene He was a little bit younger than Schmeling uh, so Schmeling was 28 in 34 Neuser was 26 his career had started quite a lot later in 1930 but he'd already made a little bit of a name for himself he'd also been fighting in the US in New York uh, in the year beforehand and so Germany had these two big-name heavyweights. The idea was that they would stage a, 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 a fight on a grand scale, a yeah. scale which was designed to match the, the, the scale of the big fights which had taken place in the US in the 1920s, for example, with Jack Dempsey, mm-hmm. uh, which had been the biggest boxing matches ever staged, uh, box, uh, Schmi- um, Dempsey's first fight against Gene Tunney. For example, and twenty-six yeah. uh, over hundred thousand people, as many as one hundred twenty thousand people in attendance. So the, those were the legendary fights that the organisers in nineteen thirty-four in Germany were aspiring to somehow match. Yeah. Um, so those that was, if you like, that if you like, is the commercial background. But what I was interested in exploring is how this event also became subject to political exploitation in the first full year of Nazi rule in Germany and Schmeling of course is remembered uh, not just as a um, a sort of legendary boxer but as someone who was appropriated by the Nazi regime. I mean many of the listeners to this will probably have heard of uh, Schmeling's fights against Joe Lewis which took place a few years later. Schmeling beat Lewis in 36, they had a rematch in 38 which was actually a title fight because by that point Lewis was the world champion and Schmeling lost comprehensively in the rematch often remembered as you know the the fight of the century it was it was listened to on the radio by many millions of people around the world and is remembered not just as a sort of triumph for Joe Lewis individually but somehow a symbolic triumph uh, a triumph for black America over A white man but but also for a a democracy over fascism and it was read in a number of other symbolic ways but the focus of my paper was was therefore on an event that took place some four or so years before that in the lead-in to that also in the lead-in to the Berlin Olympics yeah yeah so the Nazis were at this point beginning to think about the political potential the uh, diplomatic potential of staging international sport and also being seen to be successful on the international sporting stage and this was their first real attempt to make a go of that so this was a a politicised occasion. Yeah.
0: I'm interested in the status of boxing because yeah. um, I remember you telling us that yeah. boxing was a relatively new sport in Germany. In Germany yes, yeah.
1: obviously in the 19th century it had emerged as a sort of codified organised sport, the uh, Marquess of Queensbury rules then established in Britain and by the end of the century a world championship is in place and it's symbolically associated with the US, the America. Uh, where all the the, the, ch- the earliest champions, certainly in most of the uh, weight classifications, were from. Um, but in Germany, it had been essentially illegal. Um, mm. The only type of boxing that was permitted until the end of the First World War in wilhelmine Imperial Germany was sort of demonstration fights. So competitive boxing, professional boxing, uh, was certainly not permitted, and mm. it was seen as essentially as an English. Or an Anglo Saxon sport uh, in a culture which uh, had tended, certainly the conservative um, uh, sort of powers that be in Germany at that point had tended to favour gymnastics, Tuernen in German, as the German sport, which
0: very much associated
1: with German identity, German isn't it, identity and identity, kind of national
0: formation. In the absolutely, it
1: had a lot of that. It was closely associated with identity formation in its origins in the start of the nineteenth century, but. Um, One of the interesting things about the way gymnastics was understood and practiced in Germany is that it was non-competitive, at least in theory. It was there as a means of training, of building character, and by extension building national character, Mm. and it was also gendered undoubtedly. It was a a sport for men or or, or, um, uh, an activity for men, because they did distinguish between sport on the one hand and gymnastics on the other, they didn't necessarily see the two as belonging to the same category. Yeah. And that shifts then at the end of the First World War. Boxing is legalized, the first sort of um, professional fighters emerge. Interestingly, many of them had, uh, had experience, had learned to box in the British context. They'd been interned as enemy aliens in Britain during the First World War. Many of them had spent the war on the Isle of Man, the yeah. internment camp there. Uh, they came back to Germany, this group, and uh, essentially established very quickly um, a scene around boxing, which over the course of the next 10 years through the 20s uh, emerged into a, a massively popular sport uh, in its own right in Germany.
0: And in um, fact, both Schmeling, yeah. Schmeling. Schmeling yeah. Yeah. and uh, yeah. Neusel. Yeah went overseas though didn't they to pursue their careers?
1: They did eventually but both started their careers uh, and learnt the sport in Germany Mm. so um, Schmierling was originally from Hamburg Um, in the early years of the 20s during the years of economic crisis he'd actually moved to the to the uh, west of Germany uh, uh, looking for work um, and had eventually found his way to Berlin Uh, which was became the heartland of boxing in Germany where which attracted the biggest fights the biggest crowds Mm. Um, and it was there in Berlin from about 1926 to 1928 that Schmeling made his name he was European line heavyweight champion then he became German heavyweight champion a title which he then decided to give up in order to cross the Atlantic and try and make his name in America which was seen really as as a necessary step back then unless you uh, had made, your, made a name in America, you couldn't really see, see yourself as, uh, as having reached the peak of the sport, and, and Neusel, a little bit younger, uh, was from Bochum in, in, in the west of Germany, um, and where he'd started his career, and he'd also then, um, in the early 1930s, fought around Germany. Um, but perhaps we want to say a little bit more about Noisel's career. Yeah, because, yeah, I'm interested uh, in Noisel because yeah. he's
0: less familiar, I would think, so, to the listeners.
1: Yeah, he is, um, and he certainly can't be. You know, in with hindsight, he can't be held up as um, as a legendary or a great boxer necessarily. Although in the early '30s he was briefly seen as the, the next big thing, a great mm. talent. Um, and he, by the time of this fight in August '34, he was ranked. I think fifth in the world, just behind Schmeling, at that point was fourth. Yeah, and this
0: fight was seen as a kind of an eliminator. Yeah, unofficially, but they
1: saw it essentially as a sort of eliminator bout for the right to challenge the, the current world champion, who in uh, August thirty-four was Max Baer, the American fighter yeah. Max Baer. Um, but just backtracking slightly, um, and especially thinking about what uh, had happened in 1933. Mm. With Hitler coming to power, I mean, I think everybody will will have some sense of what that meant for German society. Um, Hitler not only uh, takes control politically but tries to extend political control into almost all areas of public life in Germany. That extended obviously to um, uh, the media, uh, to education, to law, uh, to... Um, almost all aspects of civil and public life but it also in- included uh, sport, sport, and leisure. Um, yeah. sport and leisure very much so so the sort of organizing bodies um, for all the, the major sports essentially f- were obliged to fall within the the influence came within the influence of the Nazi party had been centralized under this pro- uh, policy of Gleichzeitung or political synchronization mm-hmm. And certainly within a couple of months of Hitler coming to power in the spring of thirty-three, the major representative bodies, uh, organisations for boxing in Germany, had declared essentially themselves for, for Hitler and for, mm. for uh, national socialism and had fallen into line with the expectations. And amongst those included the exclusion of Jews. Yeah, yeah, I um, wanted to ask you about as that. Participants because, and managers. That's
0: yeah, um, a very significant role in... in uh, uh, in Noizel and Schmeeling's career, it,
1: is a it, it does. It does. Um, obviously, effects, this was. I suppose, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it was a, not- a notorious moment. It was the start, really, of the path which would eventually lead to the Holocaust. Yeah. You know, the systematic exclusion of Jews, German Jews, from um, public life, and it started in, I suppose, in 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 smaller ways and. It's, you know eventually then through through legislation Jews were being s- were stripped of their rights as citizens and eventually of course subject to to active persecution mm. but in 33 one of the ways in which this happened was then preventing them from working in certain areas and that included in 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 sport so by excluding for example Jews from the uh, Federation of German boxers which was the the Federation for professional boxers in Germany uh, if you couldn't be a member of that, then you couldn't fight in Germany as a professional. So yeah. in, one, in that one moment, in April 1933, all German-Jewish boxers were, st- were robbed of their careers, essentially. And at the same time, German-Jewish managers, German managers were essentially prevented from working. Now, that had profound effects, obviously, for German-Jewish boxers. Uh, some of them just gave up the sport. One or two, if they had the means, emigrated. Yeah. But in the case of Walter Neuser was not Jewish, but was working with a Jewish manager, Paul Damski, who'd been a very prominent figure in, German, in the establishment of German sport through the 20s. He, was, he wasn't originally German, I think he was Lithuanian actually, but he'd, he'd moved to Germany at some point, um, uh, made a name for himself and helped sort of popularise sport through the 20s, and he was a manager of a number of prominent boxers and also a sort of uh, organiser of the sport, a promoter. Um, uh, so Noizel was faced with the option of abandoning his manager in order to continue his career in Germany, or trying to defy this and continue to work with Damski. Damski left Germany uh, for France in the spring of 1933, and to his great credit, Noizel decided to still work with Damski, mm. uh, refused to. To uh, turn his back on him and find a, a, a so-called Aryan yeah. manager who is acceptable to the authorities now, that seems fairly extraordinary um, and extraordinary also that he um, was continued to be given prominence in German sport. but the, the explanation for was that for that was that da- uh, was that Neusel was a talent yeah which was a, already by 33 established a bit of a name for himself internationally. And the Nazis were loath to give up on someone who potentially could bring international prestige, glory to Germany indirectly through, through sporting success. And so, quite impressively, he got away with it. Yeah. He didn't fight in Germany with Damski until this particular fight that we're talking about. He'd yeah. been fighting in France, in Belgium, also in Britain. He'd fought all around London um, in 33 and early 1934. Uh, so in fact, strangely enough, probably uh, British boxing fans by 1934 were almost as familiar with Weyther Neusel as German fans were. Schmeling also had a Jewish manager, an American Jewish manager, Joe Jacobs, um, and Schmeling. Perhaps had an easier time in persuading the authorities to allow him to continue working with Jacobs. He simply argued that he needed Jacobs' support to be successful internationally, yeah. and that's something that he he also was successful in doing. He 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 was able to continue working with Jacobs right 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 up until 1938.
0: Um, you were yeah. talking about the way in which the fight in 34, the or Schmeeling mm. fight, yeah, was a kind of a. A commercial venture to try and rival the big American fights, yeah. but it's also—you mm. also mentioned it's mm. sort of foreshadowing the role that sport will play for the Nazis in sort of Nazi propaganda yep. and in uh, projecting this image of the Nazi yeah. masculine strongman. Can, can you maybe yeah, to an extent, talk about the sort of the symbolism around the event? Maybe
1: that's that's right. Um, the, the way I framed it in, in my, my talk was that this was the first sort of tentative steps that the Nazis took in trying to use sport as a form of what we might call soft power. Mm. So using an aspect of culture to um, broaden their appeal, so you know, in contrast with forms of hard power, you know, a more direct approach. And I, I refer to Geoffrey Allen Pigman, yeah. for example, yeah. who works in international relations. He's a scholar of diplomacy. And he's, he's written some interesting things about the way in which sport has emerged as a form of public diplomacy. Mm. Uh, his focus is, perhaps, on more more recent uh, examples. Yeah, but he provides um, a
0: really good theoretical framework, he I does, think, for anybody yeah. who's looking at the role of sport in national That's identity. That's right. I mean, for example, relations. he
1: distinguishes between um, perhaps the more um, direct use of sport as diplomacy which uh, for example I mean he cites for example uh, the the tour uh, of China by the American table tennis team in 1971 under Nixon which was a very sort of obvious use of sport as a form of of visible public diplomacy which paved the way to a softening of relations between uh, uh, the US and China in the early 70s but there are also, and I guess we could see uh, the Nazis' interest in exploiting sport from 1933 onwards as comparable. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also talks about um, how sport, perhaps m- more indirectly, can be seen as a, pu- a form of public diplomacy, where, for example, the state is not directly involved in the organisation or promotion of sport. There can still be public diplomacy benefits to the nation yeah um, sort of prestige prestige yeah and that's something which is more tacitly then welcomed by 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 an Asian state in the case of a totalitarian regime like the Nazis who wanted to control everything it becomes harder then to distinguish between um, a more direct form of control over sport and if it still existed a, a, the private practice and exercise of sport because it really didn't really exist anymore from the 1930s onwards. Now, the fight in August 1934, strictly speaking, was a fight between two professionals who were being paid uh, to perform for an audience. They weren't formally representing their country at all, but it became a politicised occasion. It became nationalised, not least through uh, the introduction of political ritual to the organisation of the event itself, so the the fight was preceded by political speeches of the sort that you might expect at a rally, mm. given by party members. The uh, I think one one of the men who who spoke to the crowd beforehand was a had uh, was was in charge of I think the sort of the division for martial arts within the the new structure around sport, which ultimately was all under the so-called Reichsführer for sport. So, you know, this Führerprinzip, the, the, the leader principle, which ultimately then fed up like a, like a sort of pyramid to Adolf Hitler, was sort of practiced in this way in Germany. There was a leader for everything, and one of those, those political leaders for boxing was, gave a politicized talk to the crowd. Or, speech to the crowd beforehand the crowd was expected to uh, respond to for example the public performance of the Zeke Hail, the Hail victory mm which was always done in triplicates, so zikai, zikai, zikai. You can imagine the, the this highly politicised atmosphere, atmosphere beforehand. The presence of the brown shirts as well. That's right. So the the organisation, the, the practical organisation of the event, the security around managing the event, which had an attendance of close to 100,000, at least 80,000, quite, quite probably a little bit more than that, which makes it the best attended uh, boxing match in European history, mm. probably. I mean, there may be a few, a few rivals, rival contenders to that now. Anthony Joshua's yeah, fight against Klitschko yeah. was certainly had a, a similar attendance, but it's quite possibly a little bit a, fell a little bit short of w- what was seen in Hamburg. Mm. Uh, but regardless, that took a lot of organising, and the security was handled not just by the police, but also by the SA, the, the Sturmabteilung, so the the, the brown shirts who you know they had auxiliary police powers from 1933 but they weren't trained police officers they were political paramilitaries and they were very visible in the organization of the event and the crowd itself um, had had their tickets subsidized that was quite widely publicized in the media not just in germany but internationally in britain and america and in other countries that were reporting on the build-up to this 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 sort of spectacular um, grand event um, so the so-called Kraft durch Freude the strength through joy organisation which so-called velvet glove of the, na- the the National Socialism which subsidised cultural events trips, um, museum visits gallery visits, concerts but also attendance at sports for the masses um, they laid on trains from Berlin and other parts of of Germany, tickets were capped at a very low price. I was reading um, in some of the reporting around the event that anyone found, any ticket touts found um, on the day or in the, the day before trying to sell tickets for inflated prices were to be arrested <laughs> immediately and would pro- probably face a fairly severe punishment at the hands of the SA. So they, you know, this was uh, this was not an ordinary sporting occasion I th- and I guess the Nazis were had an eye on uh, the propaganda potential in two ways, one in promoting, um, prom- or being seen to be able to promote sport in the sort of grand way that the Americans had, just, had already pioneered uh, to match the Americans in that respect um, To promote a location, Hamburg in this case, so there's sort of tourism benefits around bringing in lots of outside visitors. um, In the same way that you know Olympic venues and other international sports venues hope for a sort of knock-on commercial benefit, but somewhat paradoxically, we also see in some of the discourse around the reporting of the, the the event we see the desire to, quite an aggressive desire, not just to match the Americans, but sort of beat the Americans at their own game, yeah. to be seen to be better, to be seen to be superior. Um, and the, the sort of slightly longer term hope expressed by some of the organisers was that um, German, uh, Germany would be able to establish itself as a new sort of uh, um, heartland for boxing. To, to take that away from America and make Germany the, the ba- international base for symbolic home yeah. of, of boxing. So something that just 10 years previously had been seen as a very uh, Anglo-Saxon or American sport, they were now sort of Germanicizing and trying to claim for for Germany. And, and that were, really that yeah.
0: really sets up the significance of the yeah. Joe Lewis fights, doesn't it? It does, yeah,
1: that's right. So certainly a- after Schmeling wins against Joe Lewis so two years later um, that was even though um, Schmieling beat Noisel that was a return to form of sorts for for, uh, for Um Noisel retires I think after the end of the ninth round um, taking taking quite a beating and everyone's quite surprised Schmieling's back to form and then he, he wins some more fights he becomes a contender again but no one really believes he's going to beat Joe Lewis mm. who burst onto the scene as as not just a, a contender, but as, was widely seen as being a, a sort of phenomenon, a fighting machine. He's often slightly dehumanised in the reporting of yeah. his early career as this sort of inhuman beast almost. And it's quite racialized as well, a lot of yeah. it. But he's, he's seen as formidable and no one really believes Schmiering's going to come over. He's quite a bit older than Lewis. Most people still basically believe his best years are behind him. And then, to everyone's surprise, he beats he beats Joe Lewis, um, wears him down, knocks him down in the third or fourth round, and uh, wears him down and knocks him out. And this is you know takes everyone's breath away. His fans are absolutely aghast at this. Um, there are even conspiracy theories around how it may have happened, but it was simply. An excellent performance by Schmeling on the day I and mean, doing some of the things that he'd, he'd always done working in a systematic way he famously identified a, a sort of a strategic weakness in Joe Lewis's game tended to drop his right uh, sorry he drop his left after right. jabbing which left a sort of micro opening for Schmeling to land a right which Schmeling it really was a one-punch boxer I mean right. he could land a very hard Right, And that's what he did, and that he managed to manage to beat Joe Lewis in that way. Um, took everyone by surprise, but the Nazis were determined to capitalize on that. And then it's really from that moment in June 36 onwards, that the propaganda machine around Schmeeling is ramped up, and he starts to be presented not just as a successful individual sportsman, of whom Germans could be proud, but a semi-representative figure. Um, Schmeeling, it should be said um, styled himself as apolitical, he tried to keep his distance to a certain extent, he never joined the Nazi party for example, uh, he'd retained this Jewish manager Jacobs um, and did his best uh, at least when you know, facing the media in the states and elsewhere. To present himself as just a sportsman. But the fact is is that he did cooperate with the Nazis. He did. Yeah, I mean, he did enjoy the attention. I mean, there are many, many photographs of him with Goebbels, with Hitler, his wife, Annie Andre, famous film actress at the time, was essentially also uh, courted by the Nazi bigwigs, Goebbels in particular, the Goebbels family, in fact. And there's a famous picture of her listening. To the Joe, the first Joe Lewis fight in the company of the Goebbels family. Yeah, um, it's kind of a
0: golden couple, really. That's with, right. Yeah, they were in,
1: they were a celebrity couple, but they were seen as belonging to the the sort of high society of of the Third Reich, which is a slight, you know, which. One of the interesting things about Schmeling is that he transformed himself in so many ways. He'd been also a prominent figure in liberal Weimar Berlin in the late 20s. It's
0: interesting that he manages to navigate his way through the changes yeah. of regime in Germany, doesn't he? Cause, yeah, in um, some respects... Your book takes, it beyond, takes his life beyond the fight of the century, doesn't it? Sort of it does, it yeah, that and that's warrior. one of
1: the things that I, I, I think is distinctive about my work on Schmiering. There's quite a lot of academic uh, work around the, the Joe Lewis fights, um, which have been explored particularly from an American's perspective as mm. well, from, uh, with a focus equally on Joe Lewis relatively little attention paid both to the Schmeling's origins in Weimar but also especially to to how he continues to be um, a popular and in some respects representative figure after 1945. Um, Slightly surprising given that internationally he continues to be seen as somehow if not an actual Nazi then somehow as Hitler's boxer or or as someone who's tainted by the association with with the Third Reich, you know the symbolism of those Joe Lewis fights lives long in the memory. Yeah. But, um, uh, but not in not so much in Germany. Oh, we really we're talking about West Germany, where he'd ended up. Yeah. After the war, um, and you know it's quite a long story, but the, the crux of it is that he was able to reinvent himself again, um, effectively exploiting the fact he'd never been a member of the Nazi party, which gave him a sort of political clean bill of health under the occupying powers, he was, ended up in the British occupied zone in North Germany in Hamburg where he'd been born and where he ends up spending the le- rest of his life. Um, that gives him the chance to sort of continue to, you know, to, to, to make a new start for himself. Which he does, because he's, he'd always been in, interested in, he'd always actually styled himself right from his twenties as a sort of self-made man. He yeah. saw boxing not so much as, uh, um, as a sport that he was passionate about per se, more as a business opportunity almost, um, and he was always very proud for example of the money and the status that he, he got through the sport. Yeah. And so this idea of success with which he liked to associate himself early on, he comes back to in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s and becomes yet again a self-made man, starting from scratch, having lost everything, sets up his own business or businesses in the 40s and 50s, um, becomes an entrepreneur, he does various things, he tries growing tobacco at one point, He, he has a mink farm to try and sell fur, he makes his own liqueur at one point, but where he ends up is almost—it's almost a symbolically perfect um, sort of thing for him and to end up doing, which was that he—he he ends up selling Coca-Cola right. to the Germans. He—he he gets permissions, the license to produce and sell Coca-Cola for the Coca-Cola Corporation for all of the north of Germany and he does that through contacts, through the network that he had, so the head of Coca-Cola in the 50s was a man who had been head of the New York Boxing Authority in the 30s and they'd actually had a few run-ins in the, the 30s but they'd remained friendly and that connection was enough to give him this opportunity and so this association with America, with an American lifestyle, which actually goes right back to the 20s where he loved to you know, presents himself as living an American lifestyle, um, became a success in America in the late twenties. He comes back to it and sells this the ultimate Coke, the American drink to the Germans in the era of the economic miracle, uh, where the self-made man and America are—they're not—they're—they are sort of role models. They have this this this, this representative status for Germany in the fifties. He's, he's like pop-
0: a kind of a Billy Wilder type character. Yeah, you can imagine yeah, the, yeah, there are lots yeah. of
1: slightly cheesy pictures of him. Yeah. Um, he'd never missed an opportunity to try and try and sell his coke. Uh, you know, he'd he'd often be seen studdedly ho- holding a Coca-Cola bo- bottle whilst being interviewed in the 40s and 50s. And he's continues to be popular. He's a media figure, a celebrity figure, a sort of star. Um, he in the 60s he. Uh, briefly co-presents his own television programme. He appears on American TV when Joe Lewis has This Is Your Life done, uh, early 1960s. You remember the format where the guests appear as surprise guests for the subject, and sure enough, uh, Max Schmeling appears for his old friend Joe Lewis, and they reminisce publicly together. And that that sort of very public reconciliation between the the two former rivals feeds into this myth, myth um, or this idea of Schmeling, uh, cultivated by Schmeling and by the media in the 50s onwards, that Schmeling was ultimately a good person. Yeah, uh, I guess not a Nazi, a dip- but someone
0: who's... Diplomacy in a different way, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, he very much sort of represents... Cold War, yeah. sort of diplomacy.
1: Someone yeah. who transcended politics. They, they come back to this idea. And I think He's easier for many Germans to relate to because he didn't go into exile. Mm. You know, there are lots of other people they could have held up as moral exemplars. In in, there are people who resist actively resisted Hitler in the forties, for example, Um, like Stauffenberg, who attempted the assassination. there, There was a lot of sort of commemoration of of that conspiracy a couple of weeks ago actually, as it was the the 75th anniversary of the attempt on Hitler's life.
0: I suppose artistic Uh, figures like Dietrich. Yeah, there are are
1: those that that resisted in other ways um, within Germany, but those that also went into exile, Marlene Dietrich, many other cultural figures, Brecht, Thomas Mann, many German-Jewish and Austrian-Jewish cultural figures who essentially had no choice but to flee the country and others that chose to flee the country. But they, even though many of them did try to return to either West or East Germany after the war, often remained slightly distant Mm. figures for that post-war population which was going through a a process eventually at any rate of coming to terms with the past, coming to terms especially with German guilt for what had happened in the war, especially for the, the Holocaust. Um, Schmeling had never gone away, he, he'd been a presence through the 30s, he'd been popular and if other more overtly political figures were really, in imp- part became impossible after, after the war, Schmeling had no real problem because sport, rightly or wrongly, and wrongly really, yeah. was perceived as being being apolitical yeah. and so he was someone who's could salvage his reputation relatively straightforwardly and then, of course, reinvents himself as this sort of self-made man, this capitalist figure, uh, selling coke to the masses in the 50s and 60s. It's
0: interesting talking about those cultural figures because Mm. um, one of the other... People that you've been interested in as a researcher, yeah. I believe going back to your PhD, yeah. That's um, was Joseph Roth. Yeah, or Rott. Oh, Rott, <laughs> Rott, yes, okay. Roth. Oh, Roth. Yes. R O T H. Yeah. <laughs> like Philip Roth. Yeah. The same surname, but, yeah, but really, yeah, Yeah. I'm kind of interested yeah. in him because my son actually introduced me to the yeah. Rodetsky March and right. said to me, "Dad, you yeah. must read this book. Wow. It's an yeah. amazing book." And uh, and I really loved it, you know. Yeah. And, and maybe you could talk a bit about uh, Roth and why he's such an interesting writer.
1: Um, yeah, happily. I mean, I, I always seem to, tr- I try to find a, a way of mentioning Horde in almost everything I do. <laughs> and, and, I, and I do indeed quote him in the Schmilling book, actually. I, he wrote out a, a poem in the early 20s when he was, um, he's best, he's remembered as a, ju- as a, as a novelist, probably. Yeah. The author of the Rudetsky Mark, 1932. But he started out as a journalist and he was at least as productive as a journalist as he was as, as a novelist. The, you know, the collected works, the journalism section is actually slightly bigger yeah. than the fiction. So he wrote in the early 20s when he was incredibly productive as a journalist he wrote this uh, poem satirical poem poking fun at the trend to take sports stars and athletes very very seriously oh, okay. in culture um of, of seeing people like Schmeiling. Schmeeling's is not mentioned in the poem but another popular boxer hans breitensträter who was you know what pre- a precursor of Schmeiling in the early, early first wave of German boxers to emerge in the 20s he was amongst the most popular um, of seeing him as 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 culturally important as someone like Goethe mm. um, and so, so Roth was an astute cultural commentator but he always remained quite skeptical about sport and he clung to this this idea of there being a division between intellectual life and, and, and physicality yeah. uh, which underpinned that's a long-standing tradition in German, sort of thought and even philosophy. You know, Geist, spiritual, the spiritual, but also the intellectual on the one hand, and you know, the, the the crudely physical on the other. And so he he sort of conforms to that. Um, so I, I, I cite him in a slightly negative way in the Schmeling book. But yeah, my my first um, research interest, I suppose, uh, as a PhD researcher, and then in the first years of my career was in, in Rot as much as a journalist as a, as a novelist so he's remembered as the the author of an historical novel about the Habsburg empire yeah. the decline of a family maps onto the decline of an empire essentially the totter from totter family uh, fictional family whose who three generations of which are followed through um, the final years of Austria-Hungary culminating in the, the, the First World yeah, War. It's a very it's a, funny it's a, book. It's a funny Yeah, but you miracle. kind of really, it's it yeah, really kind yeah. of,
0: in, it, you feel like you're in that world, don't you? That's right.
1: That, that's the world in which Josef Hort had been born, essentially. Not Vienna, but Galicia. So a, a part of the, the far the far eastern end of the Austrian-Hungarian mm. Empire. Um, a place that's a a town which, oh, well, yeah, Brody is the name of the town which I believe is now in the Ukraine, right. which gives you a sense of the reach of what once counted as Austria, yeah. so he was German speaking in a place that's now in the Ukraine, a German, a German speaking Austrian Jewish uh, culturally German family living in uh, a culturally mixed diverse area and for him the Habsburg Empire, uh, Empire, Empire was not about a Germanic identity of something that was defined through Vienna, but was a supranational, diverse, multinational uh, geographi- geographically extensive um, entity essentially, which is, it becomes a, a, an almost a utopian ideal in his later work, starting really with the Releki March and then the writer, his, both his fictional writing and his journalism. As, a, as an exile from Hitler in the 30s, uh, commentating what he saw as this, this, this disaster to, to befall Europe. And he even goes so far as to imagine there might be a return of the empire. Mm. You know, he supports the, the monarchists, sort of relatively obscure conservative uh, political group. In the thirties, um,
0: empire's very unfashionable now. Yeah, but in a way, empires, if they're baggy enough, can mm. uh, can allow multiple identities for people, can't? They?
1: That's right. That 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 that's what he was championing in his work. I mean, he'd started out being much more left-wing and styling himself almost as a socialist, essentially, um, if not ideologically, then you know, in, in spirit. Um, and what's consistent is this. Um, uh, love for the ordinary human beings, if you like. Most of his of his characters in his writing are very humble, ordinary mm. people, uh, people who are down and out. The very final thing he ever wrote is about an alcoholic, homeless man in Paris, sort of a figure on, onto which he projects a lot of his own s- troubles, essentially. I mean, Hort famously was a, a self-destructive alcoholic, and that kills him eventually yeah. in, the, in 1939. Um, so he's yeah he's a figure to which I, I keep returning because he has something to say almost about about everything you know whether it's sport or film he was also quite he was both interested and fascinated by and sceptical about film and Plus so interesting he an transition sort of, because yeah. I wanted to ask yeah. you
0: about what you're working on at the moment and I believe you're working on films between film, the wars yeah
1: film uh, and photography will yeah. perhaps come to in a moment yeah, yeah. one of my projects going forward for the end of the year is um, a piece of work I want to do looking at the representation of uh, sport and leisure in particular in in German film uh, from the the period in which film goes through the transition from silent cinema to sound cinema, 1929-1930. So there are three films that I'm interested in comparing and they're all in different ways portray sport and leisure activities in Berlin yeah. in this period the first Mutter, uh, um, uh, 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 Mutter Krause is a film from 1929 um, which uh, was made by the Prometheus film company it's a left-wing communist backed in fact uh, film company which um, made some interesting films in this period sort of broadly realist films, and this film which documents a sort of social tragedy, um, uh, exploring homelessness and uh, uh, unemployment, especially in the late Weimar period, also shows us the different ways in which sort of um, leisure spaces, so dancing, sports, um, fairgrounds, things, spaces like that, these heterotopic spaces, that's sort of Foucault's term yeah. that I, I use, I use as sort of, to a of can, counterbalance to, to the world of work or unemployment, if you like. And we see something similar in the other films that I'm, I'm going to be looking at, um, which include uh, People on Sunday, mention Amzontag, which is probably the best known of the films. And Cooler Vamper, which is also quite a well-known as early sound film, for which Bertolt Brecht had written the screenplay, a film which was fairly swiftly banned, in fact, in 1932, 1933, for political reasons. This was the period in which communism was being touted as the, the real threat facing Germany, something that the Nazis exploited. Yeah. And so, after, of course, after the Nazis come to power, they... They pull the wool over everyone's eyes really, they they, they pretend that there is a a real imminent threat of a Bolshevik revolution in in Germany and all these countermeasures, these measures which deprive people of their fundamental rights were necessary to prevent that. And All that agitation starts in the the preceding years, which is when these films were being made. Anyway, that's probably an article which I've just started working on.
0: But you're also working at the moment, I believe, on on an exhibition that you're putting on at Royal Holloway. Yeah, that's
1: the other thing I just would would like to mention, maybe promote (laughs) a little bit of advanced promotion. Um, I'm working with uh, the British sports photographer Peter Robinson uh, on an exhibition, sort of almost a a retrospective exhibition of his of his career, um, which will be on at Royal Holloway's exhibition space from April to the end of June, maybe even into July 2020. And Peter Robinson was born in 1944, um, started his career in the 60s, uh, is best known uh, as a a football photographer. Uh, So over 50 years of incredible work documenting football in Britain and around the world. Um, So it goes beyond my interest in the German context. I was introduced to him by a friend of a friend. We had this opportunity to do an exhibition at Royal Holloway. We got together and thought, why not? And what's interesting about Peter's work is that, yes, he's got some incredible iconic shots taken at World Cups. He's taken photographs at just about every World Cup from 1966 to last year's World Cup in Russia. He was just recently at the Women's World Cup in France and it's taken some absolutely stunning work that we'll be displaying in the exhibition. Um, Yes, he's got some fabulous action shots of the sort that you might think of when you hear football photography. But he's also, in my my eyes, a a photographer with a very, very distinctive eye which extends almost into uh, social documentary on the one hand and aesthetic, geometry, abstraction on the other and we'll be showing just what a versatile and extraordinary photography really is. So as much of, we'll be focusing as much, I think, on his um, documenting of fans as of players and of places as of the actual game, so stadia, Stadia as topographical spaces, but also as places within localities. Mm. He's got this incredible eye for showing us how football stadia often belong to communities with specific identities. There's an amazing photograph he took in Belgium where, um, in the foreground, the football stadium filled with a crowd and with a game going on is visible, and in the Background and it's slightly foreshortened because of the lens that he's used is a looming mine with with the you know you know the, the huge sort of yeah. industrial infrastructure of a mine. So you can ve- you see very very clearly that link between the working class community, miners, and the, the, the location of the football ground. Sounds very much like yeah. where I
0: grew up in the northeast, yeah. where Abs- each pit village would the football yeah. ground would be a central feature of the
1: That's of right, the town yeah. or the That's village. That's right, and you get yeah. the same in the west of Germany as well, which you know, in the, uh, the Ruhrgebiet, the, the Ruhr area which is the coal mining area of Germany places like Essen used to be big name football clubs not so much anymore but uh, that's what mining towns as well so you get that in in Peter's work so we're really looking forward we're just just in the process of it's, it's almost an impossible task but of trying to narrow down the images that we're going to be Sounds focusing fantastic. on so. uh,
0: maybe that's something we can revisit on the podcast next yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, maybe I hope so. I Peter mean, along, it's not absolutely,
1: fantastic. yeah. That would be that would be great. Um, he's based up in Leicestershire, but he will be coming down to Royal Holloway and the London area uh, during the show. Um, yeah. We'll be doing a few sort of hopefully a few events around the show, some talks, uh, both academic and more sort of practical as well, like a masterclass with Peter, hoping to involve our student body at Royal Holloway but also attract a, a wider audience too. I mean, it's going to coincide with the Euro 2020, the climax of the European Championships next year, with the semis, and I think the final happening in Wembley in July. So, so hopefully a bit of the, the buzz around football will, will feed into yeah, you know, So listeners should be putting
0: that in their diaries Definitely, now. Yeah, Definitely, uh, yeah. Planning to get down to yeah, London yeah, yeah. in uh, 2020. Well, thanks very much, John. It's been a really fascinating chat, and um, as I said, we'd love to have you back for a future seminar at the IHR, yeah. uh, yep. but also I'd bring delighted. my yeah. recording equipment down yeah. to Royal Holloway yeah. as well and have a look at that exhibition. Yeah. Um, if you think, uh, the listeners, if you think you've done some research on sport or leisure history that would be suitable for the seminar series at the IHR, we're looking for speakers now for the 2019-2020 academic year, so do get in touch via the BSSH website, uh, that is sportsinhistory.org, or you can tweet us at the BSSH's account or find me, Jeff Levitt or Raf online and pop us a message and get in touch and we'll talk to you about uh, what we'd like you to present about at the IHR. And that's all for this episode. So until next time, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye.
1: Thank <laughs> you.